Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 183, The Great God Pan Lives, Introducing the Athenian Academy. The podcast is now embarking upon an exploration of the final flowering of so-called pagan philosophy in the classical world. Among the Platonist philosophers of the Athenian Academy, from Plutarch of Athens all the way to Damascius, final scholarch of the lineage who oversaw the tragic closing of the school, a school which notionally harked back nearly a millennium to Plato himself under the regime of Justinian in the year 529. These philosophers are fascinating in their own right, but also count among their ranks a few thinkers who are of special interest for the history of Western esotericism. Hierocles of Alexandria and Damascius both come highly recommended to lovers of the field. And one thinker who stands astride the history of Western thought and Western esotericism like a titan, the great Proclus. But before we embark on our journey, exploring this final fluorescence of adamantly polytheist late Platonism in detail, we thought that some orientation might be a good idea. In this episode, we're going to start with a little recap, last time on the Schwepp style, and discuss a few points of history. Then we will look at the history of the notion of Plato's academy versus the historical reality. So we know what the late Platonist academics of Athens were claiming when they claimed to be academics and heritors of Plato's teaching tradition and also discuss the relationship between Platonic teaching lineages in Athens and Alexandria in our period, which is from the late 4th to the 6th century. Finally, we shall introduce the founder of the last antique Platonist school, Plutarch of Athens, and his student, Sirianus, his successor as head of the academy, and say a few words about their student, Proclus. It's going to be a long episode, gentle listener, but I hope worth the time. Important historical points of reference for the study of Western esotericism in very late antiquity. The Schwepp in the last few episodes has taken a long look into the Latin-speaking world, and this has brought us into the post-Roman world. Roman administration in the western half of the empire is definitively breaking down as Augustine of Hippo lies on his deathbed. Macrobius and Martianus Capella, depending on their exact dates, which we can't pin down with accuracy, are quite possibly writing into the period of the Germanic successor regimes, which while they adopt Roman political norms to a large extent and try to run things like Romans in a way, basing their legal frameworks on the Theodosian Code, having senates and many other trappings of Roman life, certainly using the Roman tax collection uh, infrastructure, these are nevertheless not Romans. The kingdoms or chieftainships they set up are major steps on a historical process of decline, political, technological, literary, and philosophical. Despite the occasional literary light, like Boethius, there's not a lot of important philosophical work coming out of the Western realms for many centuries to come, and this means, for our purposes, there's not a lot of important esoteric material. So much for the West. But what is happening in the East? Here, things have not collapsed, and indeed will not collapse, ever. Although Constantinople will fall to the Frankish soldiers of the Fourth Crusade in the year 1204, so the Germans still will have their day, uh, even this conquest isn't the end for the Eastern Roman Empire. She still has a lot of fight left in her. But now we're in the 5th century. In this and coming episodes, we're going to rewind our chronology just a little bit back to around the end of the 4th century. And to cover the final great flourishing of esoteric thought in the Eastern Roman world of late antiquity in the form of late Platonist philosophy. But let's start with a little recap of the 4th century. When last we saw the Eastern Platonist tradition, we were in Alexandria and parts nearby. Hypatia had been killed by a Christian mob in the year 415, and her student Synesius became the fighting bishop of the Pentapolis, a group of five Kiwitates in northern Libya, dying probably in the year 414. These events bring us into the 5th century, but there was a lot of relevant esoteric developments earlier than this. In Anatolia, earlier on, we saw both the flourishing of esoteric Christian ideas, many of them stemming from Origen, 
who was becoming increasingly out of favor in Orthodox circles, but flourishing among the esoteric thinkers known as the Cappadocian Fathers. Gregory of Nyssa, perhaps our most esoteric Cappadocian, uh, died around the year 395 or so. At roughly the same time and in roughly the same region, Iamblichus's students were carrying on teaching of the great late Platonists' synthesis of religion and philosophy. Idesius, Iamblichus's successor, set up shop in Pergamum, as did Sosipatra, wife of Eustathius, who was another of Iamblichus's students. Again, dating is pretty difficult with these late Platonist teachers, but we're looking at the same rough 4th century time frame as the Cappadocians. As we saw in our Storytime episodes delving into the narratives of Eunapius, the historian who provides us with the vast majority of what we know of the Iamblichian succession, these philosophers were not only geographically nearer to the seat of power in Constantinople than the Alexandrians, they were actively involved in the intrigues of the court in ways which, while the details are not always clear, make it very clear that Iamblichian polytheism was still an intellectual force to be reckoned with in the halls of power, and that when the halls of power feared unauthorized divination or magical attack, they often sought out the expertise of these philosophers. So all in all, the 4th century was a very busy time for Western esotericism, especially in the Eastern Roman world. To give a little more context to the present episode, as we move into the 5th century, there's a few more background matters to keep in mind. We know about Constantine and the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325 CE. We know about Julian and the military and social disasters which followed Julian's reign in the 360s. Now, from 379 to 395, Theodosius I had ruled. This emperor shored up what we now know as Nicene Trinitarian Orthodoxy in a major way and increased the general dovetailing of Christian religion and the state. He also won a lot of battles, particularly against Germanic forces who subscribed to the Arian form of Christianity. Now, Theodosius II reigned on paper from the years 402 to 450, an unprecedented long term for a late antique emperor, but he was declared Augustus when he was still a baby. <laughs> However, he did manage to grow into the mantle of Eastern emperor over time and was responsible for a lot of important things from the Theodosian walls of Constantinople, which are still standing in many places in Istanbul, to the Theodosian law code promulgated in the year 438, which further settled the fusion of Christian church and Roman state. So these two emperors, along with their complex collegiate networks of co-Augusti and so forth, which we're not going to get into, the emperor Arcadius, there's many uh, emperors who come and go, and it's fascinating stuff, but not immediately relevant to the story of Western esotericism. These two emperors set some important background for the events of the coming episodes. From Constantinople, the imperial enforcement of Nicene Orthodoxy is becoming more and more stringent throughout the 5th century. As a background to this seemingly ineluctable march toward Orthodox hegemony, let's just say here that there is a considerable amount of theological controversy still going on during the whole 4th and 5th century periods. This is a massive understatement, but we're not the secret history of heresy podcast, so we will more or less leave it at that, except to say that friends of the podcast, like various Gnostic groups, uh, originists of various stamps, both within and without the Orthodox Pale, esoteric Jewish Christians, like the people responsible for the pseudo-Clementine writings, and many others continue to thrive and vie for legitimacy in our period though probably these movements are driven more and more underground in many places. It is in fact probably the case that certain movements within Christianity, and we can maybe take Valentinianism as an example here, started out as esoteric in a very limited sense, in the sense of being or positioning themselves as some kind of inner teaching existing within Christianity as a whole. In Valentinius's case, we're talking about the 2nd century CE. But in the 4th and 5th centuries, these movements, like Valentinianism, which probably wasn't an ism at all at the beginning, but 
is becoming in late antiquity more and more something like a Valentinian church, right? These became something more resembling esoteric sects or secret societies. Now, the nature of secret societies dictates that our evidence is very sketchy here, but this seems a likely model of what was going on and is a likely consequence of the changes going on as orthodoxy shored up its hegemony and dovetailed itself more and more with the state. The heretics were pushed further and further toward the fringes of society or the fringes of at least the public space, and they were searching for ways to survive, reinventing themselves in some case. One such way to survive was to acknowledge that you're not ever going to be the mainstream and then proceed with your own independent movement. Thus, you might, for example, found a network of churches. One last development we should mention from our period in its eastern Roman region. In the year 425, a hundred years after the Council of Nicaea, Theodosius II founded a kind of university at Constantinople with 31 chairs, 15 in Latin and 16 in Greek. Among the subjects studied there were law, philosophy, medicine, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, music, rhetoric, and more. In doing so, Theodosius may have been egged on by his wife, the famous Empress Eudocia, who is a highly educated and intelligent woman from Athens, who seems to have been bearing the standard for a Christianity unafraid of its Hellenic cultural matrix. It will be notable in our coming history of the Athenian Academy and of the Alexandrian school of late Platonism how little attention any of our Platonists will pay to this university which in theory should have been the sort of uh, intellectual lodestar of the whole Eastern Mediterranean. These thinkers, too, are building alternatives outside of the mainstream, just like the Christian heretics, and they don't want your university, or maybe they wouldn't be allowed to teach there if, if they did want it because they're proud polytheists, but it kind of amounts to the same thing. They have to do something different because the university is not for them. And speaking of groups outside the mainstream, what, I hear an acute listener ask, are the Jews up to in this period? Well, gentle listener, we wish we knew. On the one hand, the development of rabbinic Judaism, which we discussed in episode 143, is proceeding in the background, in the Levant and points further east into the Sasanian world. On the other hand, the precise dating of Jewish documents from late antiquity is very difficult. To take one example... The Sefer Yetzirah is a crucial document of the medieval tradition known as Kabbalah, but serious scholars agree that it predates the tradition known as Kabbalah, and that its authors or author almost certainly had nothing remotely like Kabbalah in mind when the book was written. See our discussion with Tzvi Langerman in the Oddcast. But while some scholars confidently date Sefer Yetzirah to the rather broad period of late antiquity sometime, Others argue for a date in the 9th century or even later, making this a fully medieval document by most anyone's standards. That's a very scattershot dating for such an important book, but that's all we can do. The same often goes for the endless tales of rabbis uh, found in the Talmudic traditions. Great names like Ravi Akiva can be confidently dated to specific-ish times in antiquity. Uh, Akiva probably lived between the 1st and 2nd century CE. But how do we date the layers of story and folklore which come to be attributed to Akiva? We usually can't. And there's a lot of contradiction in the material, such that its historicity is anyone's guess. Some parts of it are, must be historical, but you can't figure out which ones. So to summarize, Jewish late antiquity from the perspective of the historian of Western esotericism, we can say that we know rabbinic Judaism was slowly forming and developing in the Eastern Mediterranean throughout late antiquity, we can look at the unique corpus of Aramaic incantation bowls, also from late antiquity, which are, in fact, our best datable uh, Jewish documents from this period. And while it's likely that certain classes of Jewish esotericism were being composed in this late antique period, we can't really say for sure in terms of when texts were written. We can, however, perhaps add one further useful point, which we haven't touched on yet in the podcast. While the Theodosian Code contains detailed records of the gradual uh, illegalization of all aspects of traditional polytheist religions in the Roman world. It also preserves an interesting fact. Judaism remains legal alongside Christianity. As we read at 16.8.7, 
in Farr's translation of the Codex Theodosianus, quote, it is sufficiently established that the sect of the Jews is forbidden by no law, end of quote. Heavily penalized in all manner of ways, forbidden from holding most public offices, and this trend will continue in Justinian's 6th century legal code, where things will get even more difficult for the Jews, but still a religio licita, as it had been all these centuries under the Roman administrations. So there is some summary of some of the material we've been covering on the podcast for a while now. I hope it is helpful. I, for one, can always use some uh, parallel datings to remind me of when things happen and keep them straight in my head. But before we turn to the Athenian Academy, I thought this would be a good time also to look at exactly what we mean by academy in this context. Is this something resembling a modern university in any way? No. So what is it? Uh, it's a very common in scholarship on the philosophy of this period to read about the Alexandrian school and the Athenian academy. But what do these terms refer to exactly? Let's have a look at these questions and see if we can get it straightened out a little bit. The Alexandrian school and Athenian academy in late antiquity. We've talked a lot about lineages of late Platonist philosophers on the podcast, especially recently when we've been looking at the divine Iamblichus and his followers down to Julian. And indeed, we have a lot of information about the late antique Platonist teaching lineages. For early philosophy, there's often less to go on, and what we do have often has a lot more contradictions the further back we go. Anyone researching early Pythagoreanism, for example, knows all about this. Uh, Phoresides of Syros was Pythagoras's teacher. Pherestes of Syros was Pythagoras' pupil. We find both claims in our sources. They can't both be right. But in our period, from the 3rd century CE onward, we get not only works like Eunapius's and Damascius's philosophical histories, plus the many invaluable notes of the providentially prolix Simplicius, we also have philosophic biographies written by direct students. Porphyry's Life of Plotinus, Marinus's Life of Proclus, fragments of Damascius's Life of Isidore, and the, which is the same as his uh, philosophic history, and the huge body of commentary texts from the likes of Iamblichus, Syrianus, Hierocles, Proclus, Damascius, Simplicius, and many others, surviving in whole or in part, which, in discussing the opinions of earlier scholars, often let slip little tidbits about who taught whom, what kinds of schools they were thought to be, teaching in, what the students and teachers got up to on the daily, and so on. So, there are two main Platonist successions that interest us here on the podcast going forward, the Athenian Academy and the Alexandrian School. So, first of all, what is an academy? Uh, the term has a general meaning nowadays of any sort of institute with pretensions to education, right? But the origin of the term lies with Plato. He taught at a place in Athens called the Grove of Academos. Academos was this uh, heroic ancestor character who had a grove named after him. So a basic meaning of the academy in ancient Greek philosophical circles was Plato's school. And it could be used in an extended sense, just like the Stoa could be used to refer to the whole movement of Stoicism worldwide. Even though the original Stoa, the painted Stoa or painted colonnade in Athens was a place where the school's founder, Zeno of Citium, used to teach. So the school gets named after its original sort of site. However, it's not that simple, mainly because the term academy didn't only mean Plato's school, nor was academic synonymous with Platonist in antiquity. Academic had a secondary but very important meaning of hardcore skeptic. It's worth reviewing the history here to get a picture of the history of ideas in play in late antiquity when Plutarch of Athens refounds something which, as far as he and his successors are concerned, is the rebirth of Plato's academy. To, so to start with Plato, he was, as we know from many sources, teaching philosophy in an informal way by modern standards. He was doing what's called uh, diatribe in this place known as the academy, the academia. Then, when Plato died, there was what is known as the Early Academy, led by Plato's immediate successors, Spusippus, Xenocrates, and Polemon. Here, John Dillon's book, The Heirs of Plato, is a great starting point. These thinkers, the early academics, 
were widely read in antiquity, and their thought left important traces on later Platonist thought, but frustratingly little of their works survive. We've encountered scattered fragments of their thought in the podcast before, such as Xenocrates' famous statement that the soul is a number that moves itself, which sounds great, but no one knows what it means. These early academics were seemingly very interested in the numerical and ontological sides of Plato's thought, what is often known as Plato's Pythagoreanism, and they may have had some very apophatic approaches to the nature of the first principles. But this is speculative territory, so the podcast hasn't really delved into their thought, or rather the fragments of their thought that survive. You could easily do a secret history of the early Academy podcast, and you wouldn't run out of uh, material to debate about for years. Anyway, uh, after the early Academy somehow stopped happening, something weird happened in the Hellenistic period. The Academy, or the idea of the Academy, evolved into what is known as the Skeptical Academy a pretty hardcore school of skepticism, or at least a school of thought of skepticism, still largely located at Athens, but probably less rooted in a particular spot than the early academy might have been. The skeptical academy took the aporetic side of Socrates, the side where Socrates demolishes what you think you know through acute questioning, and they turned it up to 11. These thinkers put such a stamp on the name academy in the late Hellenistic and Roman Republican periods that academic came to mean pretty much the same thing as skeptical. In Plutarch of Chaeronea, we actually see an effort, as it were, to reclaim the name academic from the skeptics for thinkers like Plutarch, who reckon Plato actually did have beliefs and that he taught these beliefs. This dogmatic turn is what characterizes the currents of thought known as Platonism. And the reason no one called the Platonists academics is that the term had come to be rebranded so thoroughly as denoting a radical skepticism that you just couldn't call them academics. Now, this usage continues today in the history of philosophy. If a scholar is working on academic philosophy, more likely than not, they're dealing with skeptical philosophers from the Hellenistic period up to about Cicero's time, during which period we have the little evidence of anything dogmatic in the study of Plato, until Antiochus of Ascalon sort of starts down the dogmatic path. So, the middle and later Platonism we've been discussing on the podcast, from Philo of Alexandria onward, more or less, was not an academy in any sense of the term. This was just a movement or tendency which kind of occurred here and there throughout the Roman world. It wasn't primarily based in teaching lineages, as far as we can tell, though there were already stirrings of this uh, dogmatic trend in the pre-Roman Hellenistic world. And this Platonism took it as read that Plato didn't just demand that we question absolutely everything, which is the skeptic position, but in fact had some teachings. And Platonism was the reformulation of these teachings. All of these different thinkers are generally lumped together as middle Platonists, as we've discussed. They're a grab bag, but a lot of them are very influential esoteric writers. And these are the ones we've covered in the podcast. Now, With Plotinus, the great 3rd century thinker, a new basic metaphysical framework was set, one which would be elaborated and changed in many details, but which was, for the rest of antiquity, nevertheless, the standard interpretation of Plato. This is the metaphysics of one, good, giving rise to nous, or mind, which gives rise to soul, which gives rise to the cosmos that we live in, with all the details that go along with this schema. As we've seen, Iamblichus and others would add many triads and subsidiary levels and types of spiritual entities to this basic framework, but the basic framework stood. Thus, Plotinus and the post-Platinian Platonists are often lumped together as Neoplatonists. Uh, we call them late Platonists here on the Schweb because the term Neoplatonist is somewhat polemical in a way which doesn't serve a real purpose, but the point here is that Whenever you hear about Neoplatonists, you can be sure that they follow this, the, at least the bare outlines of the metaphysics outlined by Plotinus. Incidentally, if you're really fascinated by this whole Platonist, academic, middle Platonist, Neoplatonist, and so forth terminology, we go into unnecessary detail about it in a document you can download from the notes to the special episode 
Was Plotinus a Platonist? Lineage, Identity, and Scholarship. It's actually a footnoted article for the real heads out there. For everyone else, let's move on and ask in what way the late Platonists at Athens constituted an academy. Plotinus, while he had some kind of seminar at Rome, didn't teach at Athens, nor did he call what he did an academy. Similarly, Iamblichus set up a very important lineage of teacher-to-student transmission of ideas, but there was in the event no geographical center to this transmission. His students went out everywhere, and no one founded any lasting institution, which we might call an academy, as far as we know. There's a bit of a gap in our knowledge of the Iamblichian successors between around Julian's time and Plutarch of Athens, whom we'll be talking about today. Uh, Iamblichus's successors might well have tried to set up a lasting institution in the various cities where they settled, but if they did, it didn't take. At Alexandria, as we've seen, there was Platonist teaching going on, probably. Theon and Hypatia were exemplars of this, though as we noted in our episodes on and around Hypatia, it's possible to read the evidence as not indicating much really Platonist going on and more of a straight STEM curriculum, which maybe observers like Christian observers at Rome called Platonist uh, because they're just not that interested in the details or whatever. As we shall discuss going forward, however, there certainly would come to be a major emphasis on teaching what can be considered the full Platonist curriculum at Alexandria through the 5th and into the 6th centuries, and a major group of our surviving texts of late Platonism emanate from that city. Was this ongoing teaching activity an academy? Uh, Arguably, yes, and some historians talk about an Alexandrian academy, though it's not the usual way of speaking. Um, The degree to which we can even talk about an Alexandrian school, in the sense of school of thought, is very much debated. However, something new happened at Athens at about the beginning of the 5th century with fundamental importance for the history of Western esotericism. And this was something different from what was going on in Alexandria. This was the Athenian Academy. This is what happened. A Platonist teaching at Athens, Plutarch of Athens, who lived from around 350 to 430 CE, no relation to the middle Platonist Plutarch of Geronea, whom we discussed back in episodes 67 to 69. Plutarchoso Athenaios founded a teaching tradition at Athens, located in a large house overlooked by the Acropolis, possibly the one now known as the House of Proclus, or possibly at some other house. We can't quite be sure. And he seems to have revived the idea of Plato's Academy. We find in surviving works of the school a unanimous decision that what they were doing was continuing the tradition founded by Plato in a way which brought back the pristine original form to Plato's teaching. This was to them Plato's Academy reborn. Plutarch then passed the succession as scholar on to his student Sirianos. Sirianos passed it on to Proclus, and Proclus is arguably the greatest late Platonist thinker after Plotinus. Certainly, he was an insanely influential late Platonist thinker. Not just on Platonism, on Judaism, on Christianity, and on Islam going forward into the medieval period, and in lots of interesting ways, often esoteric ways. The story of the Athenian Academy doesn't end with Proclus. The succession went on until the Academy was officially closed by Justinian in 529, as I mentioned, and in the meantime, produced a bunch of other interesting thinkers. But Proclus is truly essential for understanding the history of Western esotericism. If you don't believe me, we shall prove it to you with a number of episodes on the multifarious Proclin reception in all manner of -of out-of-the-way corners of Western thought, down to the present day. Now, the Athenian Academy seems to have been what you might call staunchly, or perhaps even aggressively, polytheist. These teachers carried the flame not merely of traditional Hellenic religion, but of Iamblichian theurgy well into the 6th century. Athens thus became a last bastion of polytheist, theurgically practicing intellectuals within an ever-constricting culture of Orthodox Christianity. They searched a canon of holy texts, the Chaldean oracles, Homer, an important Orphic collection known as the Rhapsodic Theogony, and more, and they integrated these with their readings in Plato and Aristotle. 
whose works had long been harmonized with Plato's thought. They practiced and theorized about powerful ritual acts, which they called hirurgia or theurgia, through which they aimed to purify their souls and descend to higher and higher metaphysical levels. They spoke to gods, and they received oracles. Now, how does this differ from what was going on in Alexandria at the same time? Well, in the first place, the so-called school of Alexandria doesn't have quite the same claim to a solid scholarchy, a lineage of appointed teachers following one after another, that late antique Athens could boast. In other words, it's less literally accurate to speak of it as a school in the sense of a kind of continuing tradition of uh, education located in a spot. But what other differences were there? Well, this brings us to the scholarly question of the Athenian Academy versus the Alexandrian school, which is very much a live issue being debated in the study of late antique Platonism. The fact that in Alexandria, generally, we don't see the hardcore theurgic Platonism with its emphasis on sacrificing to the gods that we see in Athens, and other factors, some of which we'll get to in the course of upcoming episodes, have led to a pretty widespread majority opinion that while the Athenian Academy was a kind of final outpouring of the Iamblichian lineage with its emphasis on the philosophized polytheist religiosity known as theurgy, the Alexandrian school was more Plotinian or Porphyrian. No sacrifices, please. The gods aren't into that. And let's pursue contemplation of higher realities rather than trying, well, to separate our souls from our bodies using more mechanical means, as it were. Now, the certainties of this whole Plotinian stroke Porphyrian Alexandria versus Iamblichian Athens paradigm have been given a proper reaming by the works of Ilse Traut Ado from her 1978 Problème du Néoplatonisme Alexandrin and in many subsequent publications. Ado emphasizes, among many important points, that Athens and Alexandria were constantly trading students. Loads of Platonists left Alexandria in the aftermath of Hypatia's death and went to Athens, where things were more salubrious for traditional religiosity. But then many returned later, when Alexandria calmed down. And in the decades that followed, in the early 5th century, a fertile traffic of Platonists existed, going both ways between the cities. What we might call the older and the newer views on the differences between these two centers of Platonist education are well summarized by Cameron and Long as follows, quote, It used to be assumed that the Alexandrians taught a rather old-fashioned Platonism in the early 5th century. Hierocles, a generation younger than Cynesius, is held to have been closer to Middle Platonism than to Plotinus, Porphyry, and Iamblichus. But Isatrautado has recently challenged this long-established view, at least in the case of Hierocles, arguing that there was no real difference between the teachings of Alexandria and Athens. Hierocles was just as indebted to Iamblichus and the Chaldean oracles as to the school of Plutarch, end of quote. Well, we shall see about Hierocles in the next episode. But in the meantime, we can say this. Certain differences between the philosophical teaching cultures of the two cities are of note. Uh, one is that at Alexandria, Platonist philosophy and philosophy generally had been an affair for both trads and Abrahamics usually working side by side, for a really long time. Uh, think of Philo's Jewish Platonism and the Hellenized Jewish milieu it represents already in the first century. Think of Clement's teacher, Pantinos, himself an Athenian, but teaching a Christianized philosophy in the early second century at Alexandria. Think of the Christian students who probably attended Ammonius Saccas's lectures alongside Plotinus, perhaps including Origin of Alexandria among their number, See our special episode on the problem of all those origins and ammonii. And think of Hypatia School, where we know a number of Christian students by name. We know that there were Jewish students as well, and we know that there were some polytheist students, since Hypatia herself was, was a polytheist and so was Synesius. And if you believe J. Bregman and many other scholars, Synesius was still a polytheist even after he became a Christian bishop. Now, the culture in Hypatia school, if we can base our opinion on how her student Synesius describes it, was one where philosophy was simply the search for truth, something which, of course, the followers of all religions should be down with. So, of course, there were students from various confessional backgrounds. In other words, 
philosophy is something other than and possibly transcending the limitations of any given religion. In Athens, we have every reason to believe Plutarch's Academy was teaching a philosophy that had the religion side of things covered in detail, and the religion in question was pretty specific. It encompassed the traditional Greco-Roman gods, it encompassed mystery cults, uh, possibly transformed mystery cults uh, transplanted into a private setting. It involved doing sacrifices in private, since they were illegal and inflammatory to do in public. And as we shall see when we discuss Proclus's life, it involved a daily routine of ritual, celebrations of many polytheist holidays, initiations, both ritual and philosophical, and a lot of ritual practice, which most contemporaries and most modern historians would tend to call magic. It's very hard to imagine Christian students, no matter how liberal, going anywhere near the house of Plutarch. And if they did approach the house of Plutarch to gain some wisdom, one imagines that they would be speedily ejected, if for no other reason that one informant to the authorities about illicit practices like sacrifices could have seen the school closed down and maybe even some death penalties handed out. So my guess is this was an exclusive uh, polytheists-only club. Now, more differences between the two schools will emerge in the course of what follows, but I think, spoiler alert, that the philosophers at Athens thought what they were doing was something very special and unique to them, and was, in fact, a continuation of the lineage of Plato in the city of Plato's birth. Our manuscripts refer to Proclus as Proclus Hodiadochos, Proclus the successor. The writers of these manuscripts mean the successor of Plato's school. Now, let's turn to Plutarch, the man who started it all up again at Athens. According to sources within the Athenian Academy, Platonist teaching had not occurred at Athens for centuries before a certain Plutarch, who lived from around 350 until 432 CE, refounded the Notional Academy. They don't call it Notional, they call it Plato's Academy, but we might want to think of it as a kind of notional lineage. At any rate, it's unclear if Plutarch saw himself as doing that, but that is certainly how the school retrospectively commemorated him. He refounded the Academy of Plato in its original form. Inscriptions attest to Plutarch's prominent role in the religious cult of the city. He was a rich guy from a prominent Athenian family. And his grandfather, or maybe his father, the sources differ on this, this fellow was a certain Nestorius, a man about whom we know a few tantalizing theurgic details. We don't know how Plutarch picked up philosophy, but he did. And uh, Plutarch's teachings seem quickly to have attracted a number of high-level students from around the Roman world. Notably, Hierocles and Syrianus come from Alexandria. Syrianus, whose name just means the Syrian, would eventually succeed Plutarch and be Proclus's beloved teacher and philosophic father. Hierocles we shall discuss in the next episode. And from Constantinople, a young student showed up shortly before Plutarch's death, Proclus from Lycia in Asia Minor. So whatever Plutarch was doing, he was doing it well enough that people came from far and wide to hear him speak. Now it's clear from all our sources that the Platonism Plutarch taught was a Iamblichian Platonism, and although we cannot make a historical link between the students of Iamblichus and Plutarch of Athens, the school founded by Plutarch became the new home of the thought of Iamblichus, whether transmitted by texts or by some direct lineage, which is now lost in that kind of gap in our evidence that I mentioned. We don't really know that much about Plutarch's own thought in detail, because his writings don't survive. But based on, well, really just based on assumptions, it's long been assumed in scholarship that he was a moderate Yamlikian, meaning one who didn't go in for theurgy too much, but rather worked on Platonic and Aristotelian exegesis. Um, and that's it. However, Proclus's student Marinus tells us that Plutarch's daughter, Asclepigenaia, taught Proclus the Chaldean rituals. And we'll be getting into these, of course. Marinus also lays out a longer lineage. Nestorius, Plutarch's grandfather, had taught the rituals to Plutarch, and Plutarch taught Asclepigenaia, 
and she taught Proclus. Proclus preserves some lore about this uh, Nestorius, this earlier teacher of uh, theurgy. He could divine astrological and theological lore simply by looking at the sky. He was, in other words, some kind of accomplished astral diviner. Now, this to me is interesting. Why Plutarch's daughter? Well, we don't know. Plutarch's teaching Proclus philosophy. Why doesn't he also teach him theurgic ritual if he knows the theurgic ritual himself because he taught it to his daughter? Well, uh, we don't know, but I'm reminded of the great Sosipatra, another woman teacher of theurgic ritual from just a generation or two earlier. Sosipatra was probably born, we recall, around the beginning of the 4th century, who, while Iamblichus's successor, his direct successor, Idesius, was teaching philosophy, perhaps in a more sensu stricto way, at Pergamum, she taught Chaldean rites to the same student body. <laughs> uh, maybe female instructors in theurgy was a thing in late Platonist culture, but probably not, uh, because we don't have enough data to make any claims. Anyway, let's take the focus back a bit for a second. Uh, Marinus, in this passage we've just referred to, seems to imply that this theurgic art, these Chaldean rites, were becoming hardly known in Athens and were in danger of being lost, maybe. And that Asclepigenia was the last guardian of this knowledge until she taught Proclus. So that, of course, makes Proclus the inheritor of a very rare uh, theurgic wisdom that only he knows, right? And this could just be Marinus bigging up how special Proclus is because he does this a lot in his biography. Proclus is a uh, late Platonist saint par excellence for Marinus. But this does make sense that knowledge of so-called Chaldean rites would be growing uh, harder to find, right, in our period. After all, such rituals are highly illegal, and practicing them would carry a death penalty if someone denounced you. So we don't have any of the writings of Plutarch, but we know he wrote at least a commentary on Aristotle's De Anima, On the Soul. We know that he was busy doing exegesis of the Phaedo of Plato. He might have written a Phaedo commentary as well. No one's sure about that. And we also have evidence that he was busy with interpreting Homer, but that doesn't tell us too much. Plutarch's teaching practice took the form of question and answer dialogues, just like Plato's and Plotinus's before him. And Damascius tells us that sometimes uh, his lessons would get derailed by students who asked too many questions. His philosophy, speaking very generally, seems to have been roughly that of Iamblichus, as far as we can tell, and may well have been Iamblichian down to the details, but this is uh, speculative. Certainly when we get to Sirianus, whom more, more of his ideas survive, we're looking at a very Iamblichian metaphysical territory. Most of what we know of Plutarch's philosophy comes from Proclus, whose reverence for his philosophic grandfather's exegesis of Plato often leads him to cite Plutarch when ex explicating Platonic texts, especially the Parmenides, where Plutarch's reading is credited with particular analytic uh, clarity. Our picture of Plutarch's final years is one of classical philosophical solidarity and piety. He, Sirianus, Proclus, and perhaps others, all live together in this big house near the Acropolis, where they're surrounded by millennia of the accumulated history of uh, the glory that was Athens. Plutarch referred to Proclus regularly as his son, while Proclus referred to him as his grandfather and Sirianus as his father. When Plutarch was ready to die, he commended his school to the care of Sirianus, as well as the education of his nephew, Archiadas, and of Proclus. Proclus, when he in turn became the successor, always honored the kin of Plutarch. Hierocles of Alexandria said according to Photius, who preserves this quotation, that Plutarch was one in a chain of philosophers who restored Platonist philosophy to its original purity. Others in this chain are Ammonius Saccas and Plotinus, which is pretty unsurprising. But there is one surprising addition here, origin. Now, this has to be the origin referred to by Porphyry in the life of Plotinus as Plotty's academic partner at Ammonius' school. And this piece of evidence that this origin was seen as, you know, restoring Plato to his pristine teaching, actually presents some fairly stiff problems for the single origin hypothesis, which we discussed in the special episode we referred to earlier. Because whatever you might say about the philosophy of origin the Christian, 
no one but no one would say that it was bringing the philosophy of Plato back to its pristine original form or anything like that. However, this is a late piece of evidence, and, you know, Hierocles being reported by Photius, who is at a very long remove from these thinkers, and maybe something got mixed up in the transmission, or maybe there were two origins. Anyway, since Plutarch did not leave us any writings to dwell on, but did refound the pristine academy, uh, we're going to move on to the great Syrianus. Syrianus has left us a little bit of extant writing in philosophy, books 3, 4, 13, and 14 of his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, plus some fragments of other commentaries preserved by Proclus and others. See the bibliography of this episode for additions. We've left out a few texts which are traveling under his name, but few people think they're actually by him. Uh, but in a sense, we can say much more about Syrianus's thought than his extant writings attest, because basically everything Proclus thinks is the final word on a philosophic point, he learned it from Syrianus. And Proclus has a lot of extant writings, as we shall see. Indeed, for Proclus, the chief philosophic authorities, you might say, would be Syrianus, whom he called his father, Iamblichus, whom he habitually refers to as the divine Iamblichus, and Plato, in that order of importance. Uh, in the realm of theology proper, the Chaldean oracles and the rhapsodic theogony of Orpheus are probably of equal importance to Proclus and Syrianus. And the two streams, of course, illuminate each other and teach a single worldview. Uh, we know of a title of a lost work by Syrianus on the agreement between Orpheus, Pythagoras, Plato, and the Chaldean oracles in 10 books. That would actually not be a bad summary of Proclus's overarching exegetical stance. We need to find agreement between Orpheus, Pythagoras, Plato, and the Chaldean oracles. Earlier generations had probably worried more about Aristotle and Plato and making them say the same thing, but the scope has expanded and the whole Aristotle thing has been put to bed by this point. Now, Syrianus was the son of one Philoxenus. We don't know when he was born, uh, nor do we know where he was born, though because he's called Syrianus, many people assume he was born in Syria. He could have also just been of Syrian extraction. As we mentioned earlier, he came to Athens by way of Alexandria. Having succeeded Plutarch as head teacher for a short while, he died sometime before the year 439, since Proclus's Timaeus commentary was written then, and it refers to him in the past tense. We're not going to do much explication of Syrianus's views here in detail, because they're very complicated and many of them will emerge in our discussion of Proclus anyway. But let's say a few things, just to introduce the kind of worldview this man teaches. First of all, listeners will recall our discussion of the metaphysical reading of Plato's Parmenides way back in episode 36 of the podcast. There we discussed the way in which Plotinus would read Plato's dialogue as containing three main hypotheses about the one, and that each hypothesis corresponded with a hypostasis, a reality or level of reality. So the first hypothesis of the one is the one in Plotinus's system. The second, which is, is the one in being, uh, the multiple one, refers to the noose. And finally, the one in becoming, coming to be, refers to the soul. Then we went on and discussed Iamblichus's metaphysics. And it emerged there that there are ways to read the Parmenides which find in it a lot more of these hypotheses about the one than merely three. So you can divide Plato's argumentation up into many more hypotheses. And this is what Iamblichus does and Syrianus as well. And if you have a metaphysical reading of the Parmenides and you find all these hypotheses, this must mean that there are many levels of reality corresponding to them. Syrianus's universe was a highly granularly hierarchical place, most of which was immaterial. Forget about the three basic hypostases of Plotinus's world. We are in Yamblichan territory here, and every hypostasis now contains internal copies of the hypostases from which it arises and contains the seeds of the lower realities which it in turn causes to exist in a vast, self-reflecting, interconnected, causal an ontological structure of literally infinite complexity. Because all the triads have three parts, and each of the parts has an internal triad, 
and so on and so forth. It goes all the way down. Notably, between the one and the noose, we now find a new kind of entity, which we should talk about here. This is the Henad. The Henads stand at the heads of ontological chains from which realities descend in their proper orders through the complex structures of noetic and noeric realities down to our cosmos. We mentioned in our coverage of Yamblikos the notion that even if Yamblikos doesn't talk about Henads by name in his surviving works, he probably does basically posit something like the Henads. But we have evidence from Proclus that Syrianus is now definitely using the term Henad. So what's in a name? Well, listeners will be familiar with some of the Greek terminology used when talking about numerico-metaphysical realities. The one, the first principle most common to late Platonism, is usually called tohen, the one. Hen being the neuter form of the adjective one. If you want to say one ship in Greek, you say hen ploion. On the other hand, we have the special numerical vocabulary used when referring to arithmological number. Monas, dias, trias, etc. Monad, dyad, triad, and so forth. These terms in the Platonist and Neopythagorean writings are used to refer to numbers in themselves rather than numbers as used for counting. Because the numbers as used for counting can all be seen as agglomerations of monads added up, right? Now, why two names for one, hen and monas, in Platonist metaphysics? Most basically because the monas, while it is considered in arithmological writings as not being a number, but rather the source of numbers, and so on and so forth, it's still something, and it can stand in relation to other things. Notably, the monas stands in relation to the other arithmological numbers. The Platonist one, as conceived of by Plotinus, and even more so by Iamblichus and his successors, does not admit of any relation, not even the possibility of relation. In order to have relation, you need the dyad, but that's another story. So, what I take Syrianus to have been doing, if it was indeed Syrianus who came up with this term henad, what he was doing, I think, was conceiving of a stratum of ultimate unities beyond unities, which, while not the primordial unity, are still so elevated beyond any multiplicity in the causal hierarchy that they could only be called oneisms, henads, rather than monads. Uh, you needed a new name for these things. Now, why is this important? As we shall see when we get to Proclus, these henads are, well, theological. They're transcendent gods. And thus we have with Proclus a transcendent polytheism, as well as a transcendent kind of theological monism. Each henad, as I said, sits on the top of its chain, its seira. These chains then give rise to noetic triads, for it is they, the signature structures of late Platonist metaphysics. And each of these triads in turn gives rise to noeric and eventually cosmic entities. But these henads are also gods, and can be indeed attributed names and even attributes, at least uh, at the lower levels of the chain. From these unfold everything, and but also everyone. Proclus himself, for example, knew, through his more than human knowledge of divine things, that he was part of the chain of Hermes. Yes, the, the henads really are gods, now, souls for Syrianus are capable of a very high degree of divinization, but the details are unclear as to how this is meant to work. However, it, we do find divinized souls as one of the um, levels of reality which Syrianus finds in Plato's Parmenides. Nevertheless, it does seem as though Syrianus hewed to the Yamblichian line with respect to the eternal status of souls as souls and indeed of individual souls as individual souls, unlike the Platinian approach, whereby the human soul kind of shades across the whole spectrum of reality, or the human being rather, such that it can stop being soul, and indeed should stop being soul, becoming noose instead. And all souls in Plotinus are in a sense 
parts of the partless hypostasis soul. So they, they in, in principle, kind of subsumable back to their hypostatic source. Not so with Syrianus. He held a doctrine of the soul vehicle, the Platonist subtle body, which pretty much implies that, like Iamblichus, he saw individual soulness as an eternal state of affairs. We quote Longo's summary here, which is extracted from various passages in Proclus. Quote, As to human souls, Syrianus maintained that they had an eternal vehicle, Ochima, produced by the Demiurge himself, a pneumatic vehicle produced by recent gods, the younger gods, that is. This vehicle had a life longer than that of the sensible body, but it was nevertheless destined for dissolution, and a sensible body. When the sensible body dies, the pneumatic vehicle survives to undergo punishments in Hades, meted out for the person's past wrongdoings, or to choose a form of life at the beginning of a cycle of embodiments. But when the human soul arrives at the end of such a cycle and is totally purified, it abandons its pneumatic vehicle and retains only its eternal vehicle. The soul needs the pneumatic vehicle only in order to have a position in the world, and especially to descend into the sensible world. Such a vehicle is strictly bound to the soul's irrational life, which is why, when the soul has been completely purged, there's no reason for it to persist. End of quote. Now, note that the eternal vehicle is not made of pneuma, made of subtle stuff. It may well be Ceteris Paribus, the equivalent of the noetic bodies posited by Plotinus. So, it was not contrary to popular belief only Christians in this period who thought that human beings would be embodied in the post-mortem state. Plotinus affirms this. Syrianus affirms this. Proclus follows him. This is just to give an idea of the kind of worldview Syrianus was teaching. For details, again, listeners are going to want to consult the recommended reading to this episode or keep listening as we discuss Proclus's metaphysics. But for now, we should sum up, because this is, I believe, the single longest episode we have ever produced here at the Schwab. <laughs> Now, Syrianus's great reputation during his life and after his death is well summarized in one piece of evidence which we cannot find in books. In the walls of the East Roman church of Aios Demetrios in Ambilokipi in Athens, if you go to that church and look carefully at the external walls, you're going to find this piece of masonry, which is in fact a repurposed inscription on a piece of white marble, which has now been made into just another chunk of the church's exterior wall. This marble slab contains a fragmentary inscription dedicated to Syrianus on the occasion of his death. It is, in fact, what remains of Syrianus's gravestone. The inscription, which you can see in the image accompanying this episode, is incomplete, but contains poetic stanzas, which probably mean something more or less as follows. This Syrianus held the pole, and when he died upon the earth, he went to the blessed gods perfect. Having taught humans how it is possible to be wise, he went back to the pole of the immortals. Now the curve of this inscribed stone shows that it was hewn from a much larger round base, and this may have in fact been the pedestal for a statue of Syrianus, for all we know. At any rate, it indicates both Syrianus's spiritual importance in the eyes of his successors and the writer of these lines might well have been Proclus himself, who was an accomplished poet, as we shall see. But it also indicates the nature of that spiritual rank. The pole references are likely nods both to Syrianus's central position as the teacher of his age, as far as his followers were concerned, but also to the Chaldean cosmology because it is in the Chaldean cosmology that we find the main ancient Greek thought world in which the celestial poles are significant places in the astral cartography. As we know, most of uh, celestial thinking in this time kind of hangs around in the zodiac area, but the poles occasionally show up, and one of those places is in the Chaldean oracles. And the eventual fate of that Chaldean-inspired spirituality taught by Syrianus is kind of illustrated nicely and concretely by the fate of this tombstone that is to be hacked roughly out of its place and inserted in mutilated form into the edifice of triumphant Orthodox Christianity. The thought of Syrianus, however, was unstoppable. 
it courses through his disciple Proclus and through him into all three of the Abrahamic faiths in crucial ways which will be discussed in detail as the podcast progresses. And thus the time has almost come, gentle listeners, finally to discuss the great Proclus of Athens. But before we do so, we want to climb back up the chain of wisdom for a very brief visit to Plutarch of Athens's other important student. I refer, of course, to Hierocles of Alexandria, colleague of Syrianus, perhaps, and expounder of sacred philosophic mysteries in his own right. Until then, stay esoteric. <laughs> 